Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Yeah, good morning. It's good to be with you. It is a dreary morning. The lights are bright. I can't see a single face. I have no idea who's here, uh, but that's, that's all right. So uh, we're in our exegetical series over the book of Titus. This is the third week, and we're just going to roll right in. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is really just kind of striking for, uh, for us is as we go through books exegetically thinking like, oh, that's so relevant, and oh, that applies, and uh, this book, again, <laughs> just like so many of the others, is really, really relevant to what we're going through right now, to what we see in our culture. And that's interesting. Titus is penned in 65 AD. That's 2,000-ish years ago. And yet the underlying struggles and issues that are dealt with inside this book are many of the exact same things that you and I are kind of walking through right now. Uh, that, that's interesting. There's this propensity to think that we're special, that we are uh, unique in our modern culture, that the struggles that we have, they're just new. Nobody's actually had to go through this or face this. Nobody's ever walked the path that I have walked. And yet Titus shows us that the present struggles that we're kind of dealing with, um, they may defer in the mode that they get to us, like the vehicle that they get brought to us in our modern culture, but the substance and their essence is the exact same thing as all the way back then. They were facing a large temptation to kind of mold into secular culture. Uh, They were facing a really large temptation to begin to uh, just slowly mold the God of the Bible into the wisdom of the age. Well, don't we know better? Let's just kind of, we'll take that, we'll change that, we'll tweak this. And they're facing a loss of control culturally inside the church because of lack of biblical leadership, and in the text that we're going to see specifically today, they find themselves in just an all-out war against truth, uh, where, where people are coming out of the woodwork uh, to try and get into the church uh, and, and teach things that fit their desires, their agenda, their wants, uh, and really the way they want the world to be. They're, they're, they're trying to get into the church and preach this stuff, and these people love to argue Uh, They love to fight. They love to debate, but they're never in through their debate trying to find truth. They're just trying to get you to do what they want. This is what they had happen, and we see this all over uh, the church, really, in Western culture right now. It's a perfect picture of exactly what we're going through here. It's easy to assume that really uh, the Internet is the cause of the modern war on truth. It's, It's the Internet's fault. Blame it on Google, or the, the, the pay-per-click media structure was the death of truth, or the algorithms that you're in my phones uh, go through to, to give us catered information that really only says what we want to hear. Maybe that's when truth died, when that started happening, or we'll touch in another area. Maybe, maybe Trump is the source of the war on truth, or maybe you're on the other side, and you're like, no, 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 it's Biden and Fauci. They killed truth. Maybe you're on that side, that media, or the power, or the left, or the right, it that those guys caused it. And yet what we have to understand, if you point to some person in modern culture and say, hey, they started the war on truth 2,000 years ago before any of that existed, they had the same thing happening. There's no internet, no TV, no news, no COVID era uh, craziness. And yet they had the exact same problem as truth with truth as we do. Why? Because humans love to sin. Uh, We love to get our way. The problem is inside the heart. It's not the 2000s or or 2020 or anything like that. The problem is that we love to get our way. We love us some us. We love what we want to love and we will do anything to get that, including twist the truth. 
That atmosphere is dangerous for the truth. When we want what we want and we'll mold things to get it, it's a perfect way for truth to die. And that's just kind of always the way it's been. So if you felt like the insanity of the world around us and and what's just happening with truth in our modern culture, hear me first, uh, your fight is with sin, not people. Like base level, our, our war, right? It's not just against flesh and blood. Uh, And though it may seem demoralizing to know uh, that 2,000 years later, and we still haven't like kicked this problem, I want to offer you an encouragement as well. Yes, 2,000 years later, we have the same problem, but 2,000 years later, take heart, we still have the same solution too. You may think, well, I've got to search for a new way, and somebody's got to bring uh, or discover or create like this new problem. We've got to have this new way to deal with it. And you, you don't. We lean into the same thing as, as Paul is telling Titus to. We lean into the truth with reckless abandon together. That's what we do. And we know that the truth, Christ, has overcome the world. So even if the world has abandoned all truth, we hold to the truth together. We don't want to get too far before I teach the beginning of the sermon before I even get out of the intro. But uh, yeah, it's crazy what's happening with truth. But Jesus is the answer to that, and he always has been. We don't need a new solution. So we'll we'll read Titus 1, verses 10 through 16 together. And it says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Well, it's going to get interesting. Uh, Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. He wasn't lying. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord for them. It's the word of the Lord for us as well. For reminder's sake, Paul and Titus had gone to Crete. This is where this book is written to, to minister there together. Keep in mind there was no church uh, this is an unreached people group. There's no healthy church uh, culture. There's no healthy church community. Uh, this place was really foreign to the gospel. It was a culture entrenched in pagan, pagan worship and all kinds of sin. Notice in verse 12, uh, the line that we've used kind of every week to remind us what kind of culture it was. One of their own philosophers, not, not like their enemy said this about them, and they're like, hey, how dare you? One of their own philosophers that they heralded said this about his own people, that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And, and the people listen to that, and they're like, yeah, he, pretty, like, he, he kind of nailed it. That's pretty much who we are. Uh, to which, again, Paul hears this, brings it up, even puts it in the word. Like, I heard this guy said this about them, and then I got there. And I was like, sure, he was, he was exaggerating. I get there, like, no, he was right. This is really who they are. Uh, they were spot on. It's not a couple of people who lied. The reputation of the entire people was that of lying. Uh, They always lied. Uh, Truth wasn't important to them. And and really, if truth stood in the way uh, of getting what they want, they would just knock it down like an inconvenient barrier. Like, what good is truth if it stops what I want? I'll I'll knock it down to get what I want. Beyond uh, not, not caring for truth, it says that the people were evil beasts. These words would be like, like a, a wild animal recklessly like bullying through 
the forest. Uh, imagine even the idea that you're supposed to get here is maybe even like a wild bull running through downtown on a football Saturday. There's this insanity of this out-of-control beast. Um, the people there, it says their evil practices in this were, were even stripping their ability to be human. Um, right? So they were acting more like beasts than humans, so much so that they lost their uh, drive to do much of anything except feed their faces and their desires. This is what we see there. What's interesting to notice here is that description of Crete long ago is a good description prophetically over much of the world. Um, what we see here is it isn't just them. When people lose their value of truth, they act more like animals than human beings. This is what happens. And they begin to just try and feed what they want instead of anything else, and things go downhill. As Paul and Titus preach in this crazy culture, seeds of the gospel actually begin taking root, which is really encouraging. People are getting saved in this just like, wow, crazy culture. Uh, people begin to follow Jesus in that dark place. This should be encouraging to us. If a Cretan can become a Christian, well, then God can save anyone. This is what we're supposed to hear in the text. Like your mother, your, your sister, your neighbor, your boss, your enemy. The hand of God is not too short to save anyone. He saved people in the Cretan culture. And if we're honest, if we follow Jesus, what our heart should say is, he even saved me. No one's off limits. This is what we're supposed to know. So Paul's message to Titus is, uh, now you need to set things in order. Yes, the gospel started taking root. There's some people who are getting saved. We need to set things in order by appointing elders. So last week it tackled the, the, the character of elders, that they should be uh, anchored to the word as it was taught, not wavering, but teaching scripture as it should be, able to give instruction in sound doctrine so they could teach the word, and then they rebuke those who oppose the word as well. This week we found out the why. Why does an elder need to be anchored in the word? Why must they be ready to rebuke the people uh, who oppose sound doctrine and come in and try and teach other things inside the church? Why did they need to be able to confront this? It says, well, because people entered into the church community who are insubordinate. This is rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers and here the outworking of these people who came in and they're deceiving and not speaking the truth, it says that they're upsetting whole families. Elders need to be appointed to, to deal with this. So step back and see the, the positive and negative uh, situations that, that Titus has outlined already from the beginning to where we are now. Truth saves. This is a good thing. It pushes us into godliness. It changes us. It even reminds us of our eternal hope. So that is to say, on the front side of the book, they're showing us that, that truth builds up. It brings about new faith. It, it births faith in lost people. It improves and secures our, 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 our godliness in our life, and it even points us to what is eternally true. Truth does these positive, building, healthy things, but empty talk decept and deception tear down, upset, and destroy things. When the text says that deceivers were coming in, that whole families were upset, it didn't mean like, hey, one specific family got a little bit whiny about something that someone said. This is referring to church uh, families. Uh, these out-of-control deceivers were really kind of ripping apart little house churches is what it's telling us. This would be in our context like missional communities going to war with each other because someone came in and started teaching something that was not true and we started fracturing from the inside out. This is what was happening there. 
somebody with empty talk running in, running their mouth, refusing to submit, trying to teach things that were not true with, with motives of selfish gain were there. So let's thread that back together. Rebels who love to talk nonsense and deceive began teaching in the context of the church family things that should not be taught, all with motivations of getting something that they wanted, an outcome that they wanted, and this began ripping the fragile community apart. Truth or untruth was destroying things. We may ask, well, what exactly were they teaching that was so bad? Like, what exactly was it so that we can look out for it? Paul doesn't mention exactly. We'll get some hints and we'll see this later. But he doesn't mention exactly what, would he, what was being taught there. And I think for good reason. If he says exactly what is happening, what we would do is think that this text is more about one specific ideology or, or one specific lie rather than realizing that this text is about confronting all lies when they come into the church. Paul's message to Titus is silence the rebels. Silence them. This cannot be let go inside the church. So we're going we're gonna to pull out just a, a three-point sermon out of this. I don't do that a whole lot, but that's where we're going to be going with the rest of this text. And the first point that we want to kind of draw out from what we see in this text is, one, as Christians, we are those who love truth. This may seem basic, but, but we need to remind ourselves of this. If truth is what is revealed to us in the person of Christ... Is tr- if truth in the gospel is what saves us, if truth is what continues to make us more godly and follow Jesus more and look like the world less, if truth reminds us of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ, then we are in our core truth people. We fight for it. We lean into it. We deal with it. And, and here's what we need to understand. We don't love our truth, and we don't love some truth. We lean into the truth who is Christ. We lean into it and we follow him. This love of truth is holistic as well. It goes into all parts of our life and our being. What that means is this. We love truth even when it's inconvenient. That's the hard one. We love truth when it hurts. We love truth when it points out that character flaw that we really wish nobody would talk about. We love truth when it highlights our failures or our failures to believe. We love truth even when it offends us in some way. And friends, I just ask, really search your heart even as we look through this. Do you love truth, period? All truth, no matter the scope? Or do you more love truth that's easy and makes things easier? It's a hard question that we have to run into because as we see the truth, there's times that we're gonna be confronted with that. We love all truth. If we love convenient truth, that's not holistic truth. Now, why do we love the truth? Well, because all truth is God's truth. This is really, really important because there's these weird things that are happening in culture where people become kind of awkward fundamentalists in ways that they're not meant to be, where they reject truth if it comes from a surprising source. Uh, What that means is, um, as lovers of truth, if an atheist that offends our sensibility says something that is true, we should accept that. Why? Because it's not their truth, it's God's. If a Trump fan says something that's true, you accept it. If a Biden fan says something that's true, you accept it. Though it sounds basic, this is not happening in the world that we live in. In our outrage culture, we have trouble accepting truth from anyone that we consider not a friend or maybe someone that we consider an enemy. 
But if all truth is God's truth, then we accept and love truth wherever it comes from, even if we don't really enjoy the person that we hear it from. We have to learn to do the classic practice in wisdom of eating the truth and, or eating the meat and spitting out the bones when it comes to truth and what we hear from people. We need to learn that well if we want to be wise in the culture that we live in. See, we're so used to accepting everything as true from a person that we like. Just like we don't, we don't analyze it through the word. We don't think about it. We don't like nothing else. Just if somebody we like says something like, yep, true, 100%, and then we reject anything as false from a person that we're not really in love with. What does this do? It makes us ignorant and blind of what is really true. People we like will say things that are not true at times. And we have to reject that. And people that we don't love will say things that are true at times and we need to accept that. As believers, we love all truth, again, because it's God's truth. We love all truth no matter whose mouth it comes out of. Why? Because truth builds up. Truth saves. Truth restores what is broken and what is lost at all costs, no matter who says that we love what is truth because truth brings out health. So we just test things that are not true and we love all truth, even if it comes from a place they're like, I don't like them. But if they're saying it's God's truth, then we accept what they say. So we are truth people, number one. As Christians, we are to fight and counter untruths amongst the community. That's two. Right? We're people of truth. We love truth. One. Two, uh, as Christians, we fight and counter untruths amongst our community. Again, hear that last bit. Amongst our community. Notice what Paul tells Titus. Those deceivers must be silenced. It doesn't say, Titus, uh, watch them, and hopefully they'll be quiet soon. Um, it doesn't say, Titus, try and reason with the deceivers. Maybe you'll find some middle ground, and you can agree to disagree. and some uh, Silence them. That idea is offensive in our culture. No margin, no operation, no room to operate, no tolerance at all. Again, maybe that bothers you and you feel like, man, that's just closed-minded, like the Christianity or the truth, police trying to conform everyone into what they think. But again, it's not telling Titus to go silence all people everywhere. This isn't saying go make signs and tell everybody on the highway what you think. That's not it at all. It's saying when people come into the church with deception, those people get a zero-tolerance policy. No margin no room, silence them. They, no more. Now we should make a distinction here. There are two groups mentioned in the text. The people who are rebels, the insubordinate ones, these are not just people who had a weird idea. These are people who reject Christianity as it is in the word. They love to empty talk and talk, which means that they're not interested in the truth. They really just want to hear their own voice. They want to debate and argue not to get to what is true or find any common ground. They just want to get what they want and win and take other people with them. They've made up their mind. Nothing will change it. They know what's right. They're in it for them. Proverbs calls this type of person a fool. Why? Because they're interested only in expressing their own opinion. They're, they're not, they're, they don't want to find middle ground. That There's no opportunity for them to be wrong. They just want you to buy into what they say, and that's it. I just want to hear my own voice, and you come along with me, and that's it. This person is, is the fool. 
In a modern day, we have TV shows, news channels, podcasts, YouTube channels that make a ton of money and they're really popular and they're all devoted to this type of fool. All based on getting you to join their side, all based on echo chambers, not anything to do with truth, not interested in what is right. These types of people, the Bible says you avoid them. Hear that. Though we do not go out and correct everyone in the world, you stay away from them. Do not give your ear and your heart and your attention to people who are not interested in truth. Again, why? Because truth builds up and lies break down and hurt. The question that we need to understand a little bit in our outrage culture is, have you been giving your ear and your mind to these type of people? Right? Is that like your guilty pleasure on Mondays? You like listen to the podcast by some idiot? The word here is saying don't do that. Stop it. Run from it. Why? Because it's going to hurt your heart. If you, if you don't watch out, it's going to hurt you. But the text says when people come into the church, silence them. What does that practically look like? Right? Does Garrett just tackle somebody when they start talking? That would be cool, but I don't think that's what they're talking about. Like, how do we silence rebellious voices? Again, it's in the text. Paul says, by appointing qualified elders who cling to the truth of everything in them and rebuke those who don't. By appointing elders who care about creating a culture of truth where the people also cling to the truth and trust the truth with them. This type of culture, elders who follow the truth, uh, who, who will not deal with untruth and also teach you to chase the truth with them, ends up creating a, a culture that kind of, uh, in a healthy way, polices itself and casts out deceivers from its midst. Hear this. From the elders down, we are in charge of setting a, a, a healthy culture that does not tolerate deception. That means your handle on truth, how you deal with untruths, how, how you kind of deal with that, that also plays a role on whether we're a healthy community that, that, that only operates in truth or if we kind of go sideways a whole lot. Appoint elders, put things in order, create a culture that values truth where it's not just them. Again, I, I wanted to say the whole time, the elders are not the saviors. They're just putting things in order and having you come with them and creating a culture through this. Again, if this sounds harsh, these rebels mentioned in the text, they're not innocent. They're not teachable. It's not a person who just made like a, a mistake. They're people who do not care about truth and only want to take people with them. They're ones who have rejected Jesus with their lives no matter what they profess, and they're trying to take people down a path of destruction with them. Those people, Paul says, you, tie, you, you silence those people the Bible calls wolves. We've got to sit and understand this. One of the biggest defense jobs of elders inside the church is not to let wolves run free. Right? In our culture, the biggest danger to the church, when the Bible talks about uh, the church and their health, the biggest uh, danger isn't someone running in with a gun. It's someone running in with lies and not getting checked. That's the biggest danger. Why? Because that'll destroy sheep and that'll destroy people. Again, why put things in order with people who care about truth is so this sort of thing doesn't come in and hurt you and hurt me. The other group of people mentioned in the text, they're not the rebels. Instead, they're the ones that the rebels have started to influence, right? So you have these rebels, they're unbelievers, not care about truth. They just want what they want. They're coming in to destroy things, uh, not innocent. And then you have these other people who've just like, they've started listening to the rebels and, and, and the wolves are starting to influence them. 
This would be believers who are starting to go astray as they're walking in things that are not true. They're starting to wander off into sin. Again, these are not wolves. They're, they're essentially what the Bible would call sheep who've gotten out of the pen. And they are in serious danger of getting hurt and losing themselves. Look at what Paul tells Titus to do. What do you do with them? They're not the wolves, but they're being influenced by them. Paul says, Titus, go counter the untruth by rebuking them sharply. Sharply. Think about that in our age of emotion, in our age of constant church hurt. Think about that in light of our modern obsession obsession with how things make us feel. Paul says nothing about caring for their feelings. He says nothing about tact. He doesn't say, Paul or Titus, why don't you just start to pray for the perfect opportunity to bring it up where they're not offended, embarrassed, bothered, and you can just hug and everything's great. Just, Just pray for an opportunity to deal with that. No. It says immediately, right now, rebuke them sharply. I leave us going like, why? It feels like he's coming harsher after the believers who are being led astray than the wolves. Why is he doing that? I told Garrett I, I went to go look through the original language and maybe the sharp rebuke meant something that I didn't think it meant. And In the original language, it's worse. It says rebuke them with penetrating harshness. Oh, <laughs> right? That, that stuff will get a podcast made about you now. Guys, how many times have you said, oh, I just didn't like the way that they said that to me? I just didn't like the way they talked to me. I don't like the way a person brought up so-and-so issue. Like, there's like a little bass in their voice, and I didn't appreciate it. I know that they were calling out my sin, but like, I, I just, like, I don't think they did it in a very loving way. Like, they're not balancing truth and love. Here's the reality. Nobody likes being rebuked. You don't, I don't. So there is no perfect way to bring up a sin issue. Just core basis. The idea, even the offense of like, rebuke them sharply. When we hear that, we're like, don't do that to me. There's no perfect way. The second thing we have to understand, the Bible will lead us to believe that sometimes quickness takes priority over short-term emotional care. Let me flesh that out. Don't worry, there's nobody I need to discipline after church either. So what what do I mean by sometimes immediacy is more important than short-term emotional care? Um, And Bob Thune preached on some of this and gave some really good examples. I'm, I'm, I'm full disclosure, I'm using some of his that apply so well to what we've been through, but Here's a great way to explain this. So I live on, a, on a, a busy street, right? It's not supposed to be, but cars drive by at like 45 or 50 miles an hour all the time, right? Just come flying down the road. My youngest son, Abel, is crazy smart. And unless a ball goes into the road, then he's the opposite of crazy smart. He will blindly run after. And what's interesting to me, he will blindly run after like it's gold, a 12-year-old like haggard tennis ball. I was like, let it go down the drain, man. We'll buy another one. It's fine. And he's like, no. Like, and he, he runs after it. 
paying no attention to anything. And I've seen on a number of occasions, uh, we've had kind of the same thing. And one time he did this, I'm in the, the garage working on something. I see him dart towards oncoming traffic. No, and he's not, there's no like, I'm just running headlong into traffic. And, and, and so what's my play at this point? I'm in the garage. My son is running towards traffic where guys are flying and not paying attention at all. What, what is my only play in that moment? I savagely muster as much fierceness and ferocity as I can, and I scream as loud as I can, stop! Everything in me. Hey, well, no! Like, everything. I was not worried about his feelings. Couldn't care less about his feelings. I was not worried about tone in that moment. I wanted my rebuke to be so piercing that there's nothing that would keep him going in the direction that he was going. I cared about the danger that could have killed him more than the tone that I needed to use in the moment. Now, later, I'll explain to him. Right? You, you've seen Abel. He does everything at 120%. So, like, when you do that, then he's like, you scared me. You hurt my feet. Like, that's the way that he, like, comes back to me. And then you, you patch him up, buddy. I love you. Like, I know. I wasn't trying to hurt you. I wasn't trying to hurt your, your feelings. I didn't want you to die, though. Like, if you would have got hit by that car, you would have died. So the only way to get your attention was to do that. The only way I could get you to stop is to be that fierce and ferocious and scream that way. That's the only way. This is what Paul means about a harsh rebuke in that situation. For those falling into deception, they are like those headed into oncoming traffic. Paul says, don't delay don't try and wait, wait for a perfect end. Address it head on right now with the, whatever harshness you need to get. You, you do that to get them turned around. Then after they are, you can patch them back up and lovingly express why you had to do it that way. I've said it a lot lately. We need to be really careful in our culture that's obsessed with the word of spiritual abuse. Because, hear me, spiritual abuse is very real. A harsh rebuke isn't necessarily spiritual abuse, though. Sometimes a harsh rebuke is the most loving act a person can give you. So if an elder or community member ever have to rebuke you, understand your flesh is going to hate it and start to try and hate them in that moment. That will be your fleshly response. But we need to understand if someone's pulling us out of sin, that's the most loving thing they could do for our soul. Pulling us out of danger. And I'll be honest with you too, like I have to be careful about this one. Right? In the fight or flight paradigm, I'm in the fight side, and I got blessed with an Enneagram 8. That's a really hard combination when somebody wants to come say something hard to you. So when a person wants to correct me, what I normally want to do is lash out in anger. Oh, yeah? Like, I get all self-righteous. Oh, you're going to use that tone with me. How about a little bit of respect? Let's talk about where you're stupid. Right? That's, that's what my heart does. What I need to understand, if a person is calling me back to truth... They're not trying to hurt me, so i got to stop trying to fight them, right? I want to hurt them back, and I need to understand they were never trying to hurt me in the first place. You need to know your wiring. I'll ask you, when's the last time someone corrected you over a sin? And how did you deal with that person? 
this is a really important question. Are you even bitter right now over a time when somebody tried to correct you in the past? Right? Is there someone that you just like stop texting? Like, I didn't say anything mean to them. Well, maybe, maybe you're the, 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 the flight side. You're like, okay, I'm not going to yell at you. I'll just never talk to you again. Is there a person that maybe you need to go and apologize to because you treated them so badly because you just got, I just didn't like the way that you did that. Didn't like the way that you tried to save me. This is the type of stuff that people leave churches over. And we don't want to do that. We want to, to walk in a way that balances love and truth well, but we want to accept truth in all forms. The flip side of this is, are you so worried about feelings and perfect situations that you have effectively ignored all of your community members' sins just because you don't want to get in a fight? I want to be really careful because I'm not trying to use this text for, if I'm mean to you, Paul said I could do it. It's not what we're doing. We do not want to be a constantly harsh people. But we also have to be not so worried about short-term emotions that we'll just never say anything. Because do you feel that balance? We're not running in like a wrecking ball at each other all the time. But if we're so preoccupied with doing it just the way that they're not upset, we love, and like the angels sing, and we're like, oh, I'm just, I love you so much, that's not going to happen. We need to understand that and be kind what we do, but we need to be really careful not to let sin go around unchallenged for months at a time in our community. Again, why are we doing all this? Sin is dangerous. That's what Paul's trying to say. Sin is dangerous, especially when, when, when things that are not true begin leading the way that you live and what you do. So we're treating sin as if it is a big deal. That's why Paul says, silence the, the deceivers and get the other ones to turn around, even if you have to do it harshly. So one, we love truth. Two, we counter untruth against the church community. And three, we devote ourselves to the God of truth in all things that we do. Though we don't know exactly the issue that was here in Crete, we do know um, that there's, there's some sort of deception surrounding weird legalism, and they use the, the circumcision party uh, name in this, which was a group who at other times challenged the gospel. And instead of from grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, you get salvation, they began giving a distorted message that uh, faith in Jesus plus this, this, and this is what actually makes God happy, so you better do this, this, and this, or else. Uh, specifically, faith plus or Jesus plus circumcision is what you need to actually be saved is what they started kind of uh, preaching and telling people. But what we understand is anytime you add something to the gospel, Jesus plus anything, you end up destroying it. Why? Because what it does is this, it reduces godliness to arbitrary checking of a couple boxes. Follow me. This is the part where I think this needs to just kind of do a little bit of work in us. As long as I do this, that, and, and, and the other, th- th- then I'm fine. Then I've done enough. So in the culture back then, if you believed in Jesus and were circumcised, it didn't matter if you were a lying, a really harsh and mean person, and a glutton. Why? Because I'm circumcised. Believe in Jesus. They did the thing. That's got to be worth a lot, right? So ignore all this stuff. If you're a legalist in certain areas what you'll often do is then you'll try and ignore godliness in other areas. No, look at this. Don't pay attention to that. Look at this. This is what the legalist does. 
See, in our day, we may convince ourselves that we're godly because we go to the church. Yes, in the last 20 years, there's been a mass exodus out of the church, and there's a number of reasons for that, but we may hold up, well, hey, I'm still here. Or, you know, I I read the Bible, or I, I tithe. But if we do that and we're not concerned about things like a short temper, a condemning spirit, when you're just always just harsh looking to cut the legs out of everything, if we do those things, but we don't deal with the way that we just gossip all the time, if we do those things but really ignore the fact that we have an alcohol problem, this is the problem of a legalistic heart. It limits the, the demands of godliness, re- reducing it to progressively becoming more like Jesus and reducing it to, to progressively being less and less like the world, to, to doing or not doing a couple things that you prioritize as Christian. Hear the crushing effect of that. If we become legalists and we prioritize this while we ignore all of this, it, it steals the beauty of Christian maturity from us. It trades the full scope of Christian maturity for not sleeping around, maybe voting a certain way and going to an MC sometimes. As if that's the bar. As if that's the scale of the full miracle of grace that God wants to do. And here's what we need to understand in this moment. We need to deal with this text. God wants to do something much more beautiful than that. This is why we devote ourselves fully to the truth of God and not to only parts. See, here's where we'll try and land this if you're trying to figure out where we connect it. The licentious and rebellious group, they devote themselves to their truth and my truth. I will be devoted to my truth. The the legalist devotes themselves to some truth. I'll be devoted to this, but I ain't doing that. And Paul is calling us to devote ourselves to all truth, which is the full scope of Jesus. So he has the free reign to move the furniture in our heart every day and each day from now until the day that we face him or that we see him face to face. See, this is the story of the rich young ruler, isn't it? He walks up to Jesus and he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's he doing? He's going, hey, what's the bar? What's the minimum grade? What do I got to get past? I want a minimal requirement to be quote unquote good with God. I want a specific law or set of rules, right? You type A, here's like, amen, right? Give me the list. Nothing else, just give me the list and let me do that. The list limits the full scope of what the beauty of becoming more mature and more godly looks like though. Here's the the thing that I've been asking even my own heart and what I'd ask you, like, is this the faith that you're walking in right now? Where's your heart at regard, regarding this? Have you kind of got to the place where you're just content? And I don't mean like a good godly contentment. I mean more, are you good with the level of maturity and faith that you have now just staying there, right? Staying. If so, be careful. Legalism is knocking at the door of your heart. Why? What's it doing? It's trying to lull you to sleep. Going, you don't need to be more like Jesus. God has nothing more for you. You're fine. You, you've done good. Look at look at what you look at what you've done. But really, 
This is the, the enemy through legalism trying to lull you to sleep, to not understand the beauty of God just has so much more for you than that. And I want to be super careful because I don't want to trade legalism for, for legalism. I'm not saying, hey, uh, pay attention if you've not worked hard enough to, to, to deal with your salvation. If you've been lazy enough and not really earned back your salvation, you better get up and deal with that. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're content, maybe too content with the boxes that you've crossed, then you may have somewhere accepted less of what is true than the full truth. It's not necessarily that God wants more from you or you need to do more to to make it up. That's not it at all, actually. The reality is that God may have more for you. And through being okay with where you're at, the beauty of where he wants to call you to, you're like, no, no, I'm good. And he's got such a more beautiful place for you to walk into. With more freedom and joy and peace as you're fully devoting yourself to the truth of who Christ is and what he says and what it looks like to follow him. Again, Christ gave it all. The one who is the truth held nothing back and calls us to follow him and rest alone in his work. What a beautiful savior that we have. He doesn't make us earn our salvation but he does give us this unending ability to search out the depths of his love and let that keep changing us over and over and over again. And he promises to walk with us and keep us along the way. See, leaning into what is fully true is, is this prayer of God, you, the God of what is truth, you are the truth, just keep working. Don't let me go. Show me the spots that you want to keep working on. Not because I need to earn more or do more. You've paid it all for me and you have been good, but you're not done with me. You are the truth and I want to lean into the truth for all of my days, even when it makes me confront the things that really, really bother me. See, the beauty of when truth walks you face to face with something that you don't like to see, that's where you preach the gospel back to yourself. God already knew. Like when you have to deal with something and the truth shows you an area of sin or unbelief, that's already paid for on the cross. There's nothing to fear when you confront that. But there's a whole lot of freedom when, when you let Jesus confront that. So this is the call. People of truth walk in the full truth. Be careful. Analyze. Are you living in your truth? Is that what you're living in? Are you living in some truth where you become a little bit legalistic or are you living in all truth? And I think all of us can, can say a healthy way to maybe respond for this today is not to look for a way to like whip ourselves or hurt ourselves, but in worship and closing in a couple songs, just say, hey God, like, in what ways are you wanting to speak your truth into my heart and I'm just not paying attention to? What do you want to tell me? What do you want to call out of me? What do you want to do in me that I, I've just not looked at? Will you speak to me again? Speak your truth over me and give me the confidence in you to hear it and believe in you, no matter what you say. I think that's the beauty of what it looks like to live in truth. We're going to do um, that today. Band, you guys can come back up. We'll have an opportunity to take communion today. Here's the beauty of when we take no matter if you've lived in your truth, some truth, or all truth, you're coming back to the table going, it is only you. It is the fact that the truth came and died for lies that he did not commit for us that built us up. So you can come to the table and be built up no matter where you've been or how truth has been cycling around your life lately. So the hope is that you would take 
and just be thankful. God, thank you that you have died for me. Thank you that you have paid the price. Thank you that your blood covers even the moments and the things that I want to hide. Thank you that your blood is still strong enough to cover all of that. There's communion cups in the entryway. Feel free to take. You don't have to be a member here, but and I would just urge you, pray and worship. We've got about three songs and some time. God, what truth do you want to tell my heart today? What have I not been looking at? And take, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for your patience and your kindness. Speak over me. And don't let me be content with, with just a couple boxes. Keep pulling me into the beauty of what you want to do. We stand on and pray with me, God?